Welcome to the Murder Book, a true crime podcast, where each week we will present notorious crimes, controversial cases, unsolved cases, missing persons, and serial killers, details of the crime scenes, childhood of the murderer, and the life of the victims will be explored. Each episode is translated into Spanish. We have a new episode every Monday, and you can listen to it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and other platforms you use to listen to your podcasts. Let's begin. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution for children under 13. Welcome to The Murder Book. I'm your host, Kiara, and this is the final episode of Michael Swango, physician and serial killer. Let's begin. So now Michael Swango, after eight months at a federal prison in Florence, Colorado, he entered the Sheridan Federal Correctional Institution in Oregon, a medium security prison 50 miles southwest of Portland, on February 10, 1999. Following the publication of a book written by the reporter that the judge uh, Cashman contacted, his name is James B. Stewart, he published a book um, about uh, Michael Swango, and it was featured in the uh, ABC show 2020. So it was seen by other inmates so Swango, of course, was moved to a maximum security facility in Colorado for his own safety. Now, there's no parole in the federal system, but with credit for the 17 months that he had already spent in prison, including the time he was held in Brooklyn, and with credit for good behavior, Swango was scheduled for release on July 15, 2000. He would be 45 years old with the possibility of a long medical career ahead of him. Not longer after Swango entered Sheridan, um, the reporter uh, wrote to him to request an interview for, for the book. And um, Swango didn't talk to him directly. Scott Hollingsick, which was a prison spokesman, called uh, Mr. Stewart and told him that Swango would have uh, would have no interest in his request because he feels that it would be a waste of his time to pursue the matter. So, so when the reporter says, so what did he say? The spokesman said, um, I don't think you want to know, but the reporter insisted, no, I want to know. And he said, no, trust me, you don't want to know. So if you look at the suspected serial killers, as said often the case, it is impossible to say with any certainty how many victims, you know, Swango has claimed because he began working as a paramedic even before he entered Southern Indiana. Illinois University in 1979, the medical school. And except for the time that he was sent um, to prison in Illinois, spent time there, he had access to potential victims in an emergency uh, or hospital 
seeing almost continuously until his arrest at O'Hare Airport in 1997. So according to the reporter, when he did um, a lot of research, he found circumstantial evidence that linked Swango to the death of five patients at Southern Illinois University, five at Ohio State, five at the VA hospital in Northport, Long Island, for a total of 15 in the United States. In Africa, he became either more prolific or more reckless or both. And the evidence suggests that in the three years that he spent there, he killed five people at Nini, 15 at Empilo, for a total of 20 in Africa. So that's around 35 in total. At least four of his intended victims survived. And because uh, Mr. Stewart did not have um, a lot of access to patient re uh, records, it was very limited to what he was allowed to look at. And the other thing, too, the efforts of the hospitals that were involved to minimize the possibility of murder on their premises, it seems highly probable that the actual total is higher. Um, for example, um, in his research, Mr. Stewart did not include um, deaths from the hospital in Sioux Falls, although some patients died there while Swangles was there while in his care. Um, the FBI, they suspect that it could have been 60 murders. Um, and this is what the FBI told the judge, Judge Cashman, in 1995. Now, if proven, these numbers alone would make Swango one of the top serial killers in American history, one of the most prolific. The only person from whom reliable data suggests a larger number is Donald Harvey, the Ohio uh, nurse's aide. He confessed to 52. Then John Gwen Gacy, um, if we think about it, he killed 33. Um, Ted Bundy, which is Swango's hero, is estimated to have killed at least 19. Swango also poisoned people that didn't die. In addition to the five victims in Quincy, evidence links him to three poisonings at Ohio State, three at the placement office in Virginia, two at Attico uh, to his landlady, Mrs. O'Hare, two of uh, his girlfriend, Kristen Kinney, Joanna Daly. It is believed that he tried to poison Daly's four children so we're talking about 20 poisoning victims. If indeed Swango was responsible for so many deaths, then given the evidence of his psychopathology, it is all by certain that such a pattern of killing and poisoning would resume if he was released from prison. As Swango's sentencing, Judge Mishler ordered that he remain under supervision for three years after his release and that he received psychiatric counseling. But the judge noted that if the patient doesn't want it, it, won't do, it will not do any good. So in any event, there's no known effective treatment for the severe psychopath. So to deter Swango 
from manufacturing or harboring poisons or weapons, the judge also provided for periodic random searches of Swango's living quarters during his supervised release. Anonymously, Swango's prote- protested this aspect of his sentence, of course, and he appealed on the ground that it was unconstitutional. The FBI, on the other hand, were afraid that Swango would leave the country immediately after release, rendering all efforts to monitor or control him useless. Only conviction on a murder charge would secure the minimum sentence likely to protect the public, which would be life imprisonment. The federal code specifically cites murder by poison as a crime punishable by death or imprisonment imprisonment for, for life. So with incoming test results from Dominic Buffalino in hand, FBI agents, other federal investigators, and pathologists, they went to Zimbabwe in late 1998. They exhumed the bodies of four of Swango's victims at Nini, Ma, uh, Malanvana, Chipoko, Gwendia, and Shaba. They returned to the United States with tissue and hair samples, as well as samples from Margaret Shu that have been saved by Zimbabwean authorities. While the critical physical evidence that had so long eluded investigators appeared to be falling in place, proving murder beyond a reasonable doubt still seemed less than certain. The earlier FBI record in the Swango case had hardly been stellar. The Bureau repeatedly lost track of Swango. In Florida, through what seems sheer disorganization, and allowed him to elude prosecution for years. By the time it occurred to Cecilia Gardner to pursue him on lesser fraud charges, Swango had fled the country. Nor was a thorough investigation of suspicious death at the Northport VA hospital undertaken under after Swango arrest at O'Hare when evidence had had four more years to disappear or grow stale. But the FBI no doubt deserves credit for in its more recent work on Long Island and under difficult conditions in Zimbabwe, as well as for its sophisticated lab work. In the spring of 2000, finally a grand jury was convened. Swango was indicted on nine counts of murder that June, just weeks before he would have been eligible for release from prison. On September 6, he appeared before a federal judge on an island. He was showing no emotion. He didn't show any remorse. He decided to plead guilty to administering toxic substances, which um, he knew were likely to cause death. Later identified by the FBI as epinephrine, to three patients in the Virginia uh, hospital, Swango did not admit to, to kill uh, and killing Dominic Buffalino, and he did not admit in killing Baron Harris, though no one believed that the three murders he admitted to were the only ones for which he was guilty. He was sentenced to three life sentences to be served consecutively, and as part of his plea bargain, was spared the death penalty and will not be extradited to Zimbabwe. 
following his sentencing in New York, Swango traveled to Columbus, Ohio, where he pleaded guilty to one murder while he was at Ohio State. He admitted killing Cynthia Ann McGee, the young gymnast from the University of Illinois, also by fatal injection. Again, no one believed that was the full extent of his crimes there. He was sentenced to another life term in Ohio to be served in the unlikely event he was ever released from federal prison. Swango would spend the rest of his life behind bars. When Swango was sentenced in Long Island, many of the victim's family were there, and many of them sobbed as he appeared and coolly acknowledged injecting his victims. During his appearance, he looked um, thinner. He was no longer fit like he was before. Um, he had a noticeable scar across his face that apparently he got from a prison fight. He never looked in the direction of the victim's families. And as the sentencing proceeded, he even corrected the judge's pronunciation of drug names and technical terms several times as, as he was still the precocious medical student. After his guilty pleas, but before the judge passed sentence, the judge asked him if he wished to apologize to the family members who had gathered in the courtroom. Swango declined. Muriel Swango, his mother, who had set such store by her bright, talented third-born child, knew nothing of his fate. Despite Michael's occasional references to his mother being dead, she was alive in a nursing home in Palmyra, Missouri, and Michael never visited her, or so far as nursing home officials knew, he, they don't, he, it doesn't appear that he made any attempt to contact her. Her condition steadily deteriorated. She didn't recognize the last relative who visited her, one of Michael's cousins who found Muriel lying in a fetal position. She, at this point, she was unable to feed herself. She was unable or unwilling to speak. She died in 1999 at the age of 78. No ceremony, no announcement. Only Michael's half-brother, Richard, visited him in prison. And Swango asked to be assigned to a prison in Oregon so he could be near Richard, who retired from his accounting practice in Florida and now lives in the Portland area. But after Swango was transferred to Colorado, the visits from Richard stopped. Swango's brother Bob was has read avidly on the subject of the psychopathic mind and serial killers, and he and his brother John have spoken on the phone about Michael on interviews and agreed that Michael is fully capable of murder. At Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, Dr. Manuel Sargonis remained the vice president for health services after Swango's apprehension. Dr. Sargonis, both through a spokesman and his secretary, declined comments for any interviews 
off of the book that Mr. Stewart wrote. In late 1999, Dr. Sargonis resigned his administrative post, saying that this is a good time to make the change. And to mark the occasion, the university trustees named the Ohio State University Medical School Research Facility after him. He remained a practicing physician and faculty member at the medical school. Michael Whitcomb, the hospital medical director and the doctor in charge of the Swango investigation, took a leave of absence and then left Ohio State. He became dean of the University of Missouri School of Medicine in Columbia in 1986 and then in 1988 became dean of the medical school at the University of Washington in Seattle. In 1990, Dr. Whitcomb resigned after an employee claimed he uh, applied her with liquor, left with her in his car, and after suffering a flat tire, sexually assaulted her, first on the ground outside the car and later in public park. She filed a criminal complaint, but evidence suggested that the sexual activity was consensual and the King County prosecutor declined to file charges. At the time of his resignation, Dr. Whitcomb and um, uh, doing an interview said that the charges were false, that they were unfair, but conceded. He acknowledged that he had a drinking problem for several years, but said he had stopped drinking and was undergoing counseling. Despite the controversy in Seattle and despite the problems that had surfaced while Dr. Whitcomb was still in Ohio State, Dr. Sargonis rehired Dr. Whitcomb as director of the Institute of Health Policy Studies. He returned to Ohio State in 1992, and he resigned two years later. So these doctors don't learn their lessons. After working briefly for the American Medical Association in Chicago, Dr. Whitcomb became senior vice president for medical education at the Association of Medical Colleges, American Medical Colleges in Washington, D.C. Reached there in 1998 by the reporter, Mr. Stewart, but he declined. He said that he had no interest in talking to anyone about this swango. And he said the reason was because it has been poorly reported and there have been many inaccuracies. Then there was Dr. Joseph Goodman. Dr. Joseph Goodman, who initially handled the hospital's investigation of Swango, was promoted from assistant to associate professor of surgery and remained on the faculty, specializing in neurosurgery. Goodman did not respond to repeated phone calls um, from reporters either. Robert Holder, the Ohio's uh, assistant attorney general, who handled the Swango investigation, became an associate to Dr. Sargonis in charge of legal affairs, retaining the post after Sargonis' resignation. When Mr. Stewart, the reporter, uh, uh, reached him at his office doing his research for the book, he defended the university's investigation of Swango and the decision to allow him to complete his internship. And he said, quote, naturally, 
a review was criticized after the fact, but you don't come to a meeting thinking someone is a complicated psychopathic killer. End quote. He emphasized that at the time, no one knew of any blemish on Swango's character. They, he also said that the complaint was taken very seriously, that it was considered by a distinguished group, that they did a more extensive review, um, that his subsequent experience tells him that a lot of places would do. And then he said, quote, the concern of the group at the time was to be even-handed, end quote. So he denied that concern over potential liability was a factor. Still, he acknowledged that with benefit of hindsight, they could have done better, no doubt. He also said the university and the hospital had heeded the recommendations in the Meeks report and that steps have since been taken to improve relations between the police force and the hospital. But of the three most important recommendations contained in the mixed report, none was implemented. Of the three most important recommendations contained in the mixed report, none was implemented. In 1999, 13 years after the report was issued, there was no security office that reported to a hospital administrator staffed with persons trained as investigators and capable of handling medically related investigations, as it was recommended. There was no statement of principles formally implemented to govern police presence in the hospital in an effort to ease tensions between law enforcement and hospital personnel. So after Mr. Stewart published his book about Swango, the Columbus Dispatch did its own inquiry, confirming that the, the important mixed recommendations have not been implemented. They said that the people they talked to said that it was worse than it was before. And the director of hospital security, Robert Myers, uh, told the paper the following. He said, quote, doctors are doctors. Believe me, I know. They're like fi fighter pilots. You cannot tell them much, end quote. Mix also recommended that Ohio State take steps to improve relations with the press. Initially, Ohio State's Director of Communications, Malcolm Borroway, was also dealt with the press during the original Swango affair and offered to help with um, the research of Mr. Stewart's book. He, he said that he would make others at the Ohio State University available, but little assistance was provided. The doctors and other staff later told Mr. Stewart that they have been discouraged from talking to him. So what he decided to do was to arrange all his interviews independently of the Ohio State University Public Relations Office. After David Crawford, a spokesman for the hospital, demanded that all questions needed to be in writing, and then he refused even to disclose the number of beds in the Ohio State Hospital. So when he tried to call uh, the director of communications, Mr. Bowerwick, to complain, he said, frankly, when we're just not 
very interested in helping you. And then there was Cecilia Gardner, the former assistant U.S. attorney in charge of the Swango case. She told Mr. Stewart that when she tried to call several times to hold her, he never returned her calls. The only instance that she could think of in her career of another lawyer's failing to return a call from the U.S. Department of Justice, that was that occasion. So Holder did not return calls to Mr. Stewart either after their initial conversation. And Barrowade even told him that Mr. Holder was tired of talking about Swango, so he's not going to call back. Unlike some of those who exonerated Swango, like Jan Dixon, the chief of nursing who brought Swango to top uh, Ohio State University Hospital Administrator's attention, she left the hospital in 1985, shortly after the Swango investigation was concluded, after her position was eliminated in a reorganization. She became chief of nursing at Baptist Medical Center in Little Rock, and she said that the doctors did not want to believed they were all in denial, according to her. Donald Bonayoski, the acting Ohio State University Hospital Executive Director, who thought the police should have been called, was replaced in 1985. He joined a hospital in Newark, Ohio. And he was more blunt than Dixon. He said, Jen and I will ostracize at Ohio State University for raising concerns about Dr. Swango. Boryanowski and Dixon, they eventually got married in 1988, and then they retired in Missouri. Ed Morgan remained an assistant prosecuting attorney in Columbus, and after more than a decade, he was still bitter about his inability to prosecute Swango and the behavior that he encountered at Ohio State University. He said that he was frustrated. Um, He said, if we had been contacted, there was a lot of evidence that would have been available, but instead the evidence disappeared. You have to have physical evidence because the circumstantial is not enough. It was shocking to me that this was not referred to me earlier. That was his quote. The doctors and administrators at the university hospitals, they greatly resented the intrusion of law enforcement in their affairs. And from the very first day, they resented the cops. They never really cooperated, or if they cooperated, it was very little because they didn't trust them. They were petrified of lawsuits. And when they realized that they had an errant doctor, They simply did not renew his contract, let him slip away. They cover it up. That's what it was. So every year, Morgan and Dr. Sargonis attended a New Year's Day party at the hospital from mutual friend. And in the 13 such occasions since he issued his report on Swango, Morgan said that Sargonis barely spoke to him. Among other university medical personnel who dealt with Swango, Dr. John Murphy, he was the faculty member who defended Swango at Southern Illinois University, and say from him from dismissal, continue as a pathologist in Springfield and remain on the uh, 
Southern Illinois University faculty. Having taken Murphy's course that covered toxicology, Swango wrote him from prison after his conviction in Quincy, asking Murphy to help him to spoof the charges. But by then, Murphy had changed his views about Swango and realized he had made a terrible mistake in defending him, so he did not answer Swango's letter. Dr. Anthony Salem, who recommended Swango's admission to the University of South Dakota, left Sioux Falls in 1998 for reasons unrelated to Swango. He's a physician. He became a physician at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Las Vegas. Dr. Raleigh Talley, who warned um, State University of New York in Stony Brook that Swango might be among their residents, remained dean of the medical school at the University of South Dakota, and he declined to comment on any aspect um, of the book. And then Dr. Alan Miller, the former director of admissions for the residency program at uh, State University of New York in Stony Brook, remained on the faculty as a part-time professor of psychiatry. So he was a part-time professor of psychiatry. He, at that time, at the time he was asked to step down as director of the psychiatric, uh, oh, sorry, psychiatric residency program, the residents protested that he was unfairly made the fall guy. So they wrote a letter of protest to the dean and they asked Miller to speak at the graduation. And when he was interviewed by the, by, um, the reporter, um, Dr. Miller was very honest about what happened. He said that Swango was an oversight. He said, I take responsibility for it. But still, he said, it pains him to think that after a long and illustrious career, this is how he will be remembered. He said, in my professional life, this is the worst single episode. So after he resigned his post as dean at the State University of New York in Stony Brook, Jordan Cohen accepted a position as head of the Association of American Medical Colleges in Washington, D.C., the same organization that handles applications for residencies. Cohen said that at the time that he saw the new position as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be of service nationally to academic medicine. But ironically, he was working there with Dr. Whitcomb, which meant that the two of the doctors involved in Swango's career were overseeing the application process of all medical school residents in America. And then Kristen's parents, Al and Sharon Cooper. They moved to a condominium development in Yorktown, Virginia. Al recovered from his heart surgery. Sharon said that after Kristen's death, especially after she learned of his past, she feared Swango, but now would be happy to confront him face to face. And she even said, I don't care if he tries to kill me. He can take anything more pre- he cannot take anything more precious away from me that he already has. Um, the Coopers, after repeated inquiries, they were finally told by the FBI that Kristen's hair sample had tested positive for the presence of a toxic substance. 
The sample also indicated that Kristen had been poisoned over a lengthy period of time. Sharon Cooper has agonized over the thought that if she had acted sooner to warn people about Swango, others might be alive today. After she learned of Baron Harris's death on Long Island, she called Elsie Harris and both women cried over the phone. Mrs. Harris tried to reassure her, saying that Sharon had done everything that could have been expected probably more than most people would have done. But whatever happens to Swango now, she said, we feel that we have been given a lifetime sentence. All I want from Mike was an admission of guilt for what he has done and his willingness to take the consequences. Rena Cooper, this is the woman in um, <clears throat> Ohio State University in 1984 was paralyzed and almost die, she launched the first serious investigation of Swango. And she was still living in Columbus at the time of Swango's sentencing. And at this time, she was 84 years old. She was living alone on Social Security. And she said that she basically was living at a poverty level. But her mind was very alert. And she still remembered uh, the events in, in the hospital and she told um, the writer uh, slash reporter she said you know they say we were crazy referring to herself and to her roommate Awonia Hutz she said they there was she said they told us that we were crazy but there was no doubt in, in our mind in my mind that Swango was the person who injected something into my IV tube. It was Swango himself. I would have seen him before on his rounds. And she always maintained that she never identified her attacker as a female. She never said that he was forming a yellow pharmacy code like they were saying. So in 1986, she did file a lawsuit against the hospital, advised by her lawyer that it was best she could hope for, she settled the case in 1989. But they only gave her $8,500, an outcome that prompted her to write a letter to the judge. And she, and she wrote, I did not know that life was so cheap in the eyes of some people. I have nothing against Ohio State University Hospital. Nor do I have any hatred for young Swango. She said, I do feel that he's asking for help, but no one seems to hear him screaming. I hope before he goes too much further, young Swango would get the help he's asking and needs. And she sincerely, Rena Cooper. Of course, um, he committed... Uh, or murders after that. So this fell on deaf ears. This is the ending of this episode. Well, of this case, I should say. Um, <clears throat> I look to see if there's anything new about Michael Joseph Swango. Um, 
and he is still serving his sentence of life without parole and he is still in the same um, penitentiary they have not um, transfer him or anything so he is still um, in a supermax federal penitentiary in Florence Colorado and he's around 68 um, years old so that is where he's going to stay for the remainder of his natural life thank you for listening to the murder book I will be starting a new case um, next time, next week. So, have a great week. Thanks again for tuning into The Murder Book, a true crime podcast. You can find all episodes of The Murder Book for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Our Heart Radio, Podchaser, Amazon Music, you can go to my website, themurderbooktruecrimepodcast.com. All resources used in researching this episode, including books and newspaper articles, are on my website. We are on Facebook and on Twitter at themurderbook1. Send your comments or suggestions at my email, themurderbook5 at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a five-star rating so that others can find this podcast and it helps me get better. Episodes come out every Monday and there's a Spanish version for this episode. Enjoy your week. Hello.